university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard, and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers podcast. And I want to start off today by letting you know a little bit about why this season has taken so long to kick off. If you'll recall, season three ended right around Christmas time, and we haven't been back since. The reason for that is pretty simple. I have had some family tragedy happen. I really want to thank those of you who donated to my sister Nicole's cancer fund. And I wanted to let all of you know that unfortunately she did end up losing her battle with cancer, which was fairly tragic for our family. And it took me a little while to be able to get back to doing the things that I love to do, like this podcast. So thank you all for your donations. And we're really excited to be back with you. In the meantime, While all that was happening, we also moved into, as we've been affectionately calling it around here, the coronapocalypse. So the coronavirus has set in for all of us, and we are all now in quarantine. And because we are all now in sort of self-quarantine spaces, it's time to get back to podcasting. We're all here, and so we can all get together with you, our listeners, because, you know, heaven knows you have plenty of time to sit and listen to podcasts with us now. So today's podcast is going to work a little bit differently. And actually, most of this season is probably going to work a little bit differently in that we're going to be doing a whole bunch of roundtables. So instead of it just being me with one of our guest workers, today it's going to be me with four of our guest workers. And every episode this season is probably going to work the exact same way. Also, you may notice that the audio quality is a little weird. That's because we are not recording in the studio as we normally would. We are recording each from our own homes, from our own home studios. So the audio quality may not be up to where it normally is. Hopefully that won't be too distracting. So with me today is Jonathan Alexandratos. Jonathan is an instructor in developmental English at Queensborough Community College in New York. Also with me today is Dr. Shannon Sindorf. Shannon is an instructor in media studies at both University of Colorado Boulder and University of Colorado Denver. Natalie Shepard, formerly Natalie Shepard, now Natalie Shepard Bodine. Congratulations. Thank you. Not official yet. We haven't received the certificate. Everything's on hold. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> Tragedy strikes. Well, we're going to give it to you anyway for now. I'll take it. Natalie Shepard Bodine, who is a PhD student in literature at Louisiana State University, and also Jen Zuko, who is an instructor in English and theater at Metropolitan State University and the University of Denver. Welcome to the show, crew. Hello. Happy to be here. Hey. Happy to be here. Today, what we are going to be doing here on the show is we're going to be talking about a thing that has affected all five of us, really, pretty heavily And that is the idea of teaching popular culture when you have to do it entirely online. Because for all five of us, our universities, our various colleges, have all gone to remote learning only. All of us have been forced out of the classrooms and into online spaces of one kind or another. And so I thought it would be interesting for you, listener, to hear a little bit about how the study of popular culture is rapidly evolving out of dire necessity. So this is definitely going to be a little more academic, a little more meta than our normal podcast. We aren't really going to be applying anything to a particular piece of popular culture this time around, but I promise you, give us a few weeks and we will be back to you know, screaming about Transformers and Hamilton and Game of Thrones like we normally do. That is our topic for today, and I'm sure everyone has sort of plenty to kick in on. So I'm going to lean back and I'm going to 
let our guests jump in and I'll, I'll sort of play goalie. I'll jump in and, and kick in when something's appropriate. So who wants to get us started? I'll start. I've been teaching online since 2004. So at least at the college level and graduate level. So it's not like online teaching is foreign to me. Like I get it and I get how, and I've seen the various sort of evolutions of various LMSs and stuff like that. LMS meaning learning management system, I guess. Is that what it's called? Anyway, I don't know. It's the thing that you teach online with. But this semester was actually a huge challenge because right before my spring break, my spring break is actually this week. Yay, I'm on spring break. <laughs> right after my spring break, officially, uh, Metro State University of Denver has declared all classes to be online only. And this semester I'm teaching a movement class. And usually I teach stage combat as well. And so I'm like, well, how would I teach stage combat? You need a partner. You can't like just punch yourself in the face like at the end of Fight Club. I mean, you could, but that's not actual technique, right? <laughs> so this is not a combat class, this is a movement class, but it's still, I'm finding it to be a very new challenge. Like how do I teach these college kids how to do their spe very specific movement techniques and skills using only online. Now for this next unit that I'm doing, which is clowning, they can do their projects solo, which is fine. I'm actually gonna use TikTok for that, so more on that later. <laughs> but then their, for their final project, they're supposed to put up these Dr. Suits plays and they're in ensembles of five. And I'm like, I don't know how to, I mean, I, I, I'm still kind of stymied or, or not really stymied necessarily. I have a few ideas, but it's, it's definitely not gonna be the same. And so I'm wondering how I can give them a, an equivalent experience online only that they would get if it were in person. And like I said, this next unit of clowning is okay. They can do their stuff solo and it's not a big deal, but for when I'm trying to have them do ensemble stuff, I'm not actually really sure if they're going to be getting an equivalent. I mean, technically the school is gonna be required to allow me to do it, but I'm just, I'm just not sure they're actually gonna get an actual equivalent of what they would have gotten in the classroom in that particular case. Everything else is fine. I can do everything online. I can put my lectures online. That's not a big deal. That's not a problem. But this particular class has been very challenging. Yeah, I think for us, Jen, it's really interesting to, to kind of hear you talk about the difference between being an online professor for a long period of time and now taking the classes where you're not an online professor and sort of haphazardly kind of throwing that stuff onto an online platform. I don't mean haphazardly in a bad way. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing it quite haphazardly. No, it is. <laughs> well, we weren't given a choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, we, were, yeah. we were required to go online in three days. And I was more prepared, I think, than a lot of people because I already do a lot of stuff on Canvas. That's our LMS. Mm -hmm. um, I'm only yeah, teaching at CU Boulder this semester, but we were only given three days and I still, the biggest problem I'm having is that I have never taught online before. If I had planned this class, I'm teaching social media. If I had planned this class from the start as an online course, it would have been totally different. Way different, but Because yeah. we're halfway through, I'm struggling to find a way to actually teach them the concepts in a way that I do feel like I'm haphazardly throwing it online, but I don't feel like I have a choice. I, I don't. The thing that I'm missing the most is the interaction. I didn't realize how much I fed off of my students, the energy in the room being in there. And I, I struggle with how much to sort of demand interaction and engagement out of them when everyone has been scattered. They have so much going on. I have students who are taking care of family members. I have, yep. you know, so I, I struggle with... Want, not wanting to demand too much out of them, but still giving them what they're paying for, which right, is exactly. education at the same time. Shannon, I, I can't believe it. You you actually just solved a major problem that I've been having, which is Yay. why do I feel so tired? And you just hit the nail <laughs> on the head. The reason I feel so tired is because I also feed off of that energy you're talking about, and I am not getting that, understandably, 
uh, so I'm putting it in. I'm I'm like the stand-up comic where nobody laughs, and yet you still want to kind of do your thing, uh, and you're just oh. like, ah, please stick with me. Oh. I hope you're out there. You know, I've had to write jokes out because I've realized that there's no way for me. Not that I was necessarily funny in the classroom, no, me neither. But they maybe you know there would be my TAs at least laughed at my jokes. But I, you know, I there's no. I've just given up on trying to be funny, and I just you know. Here, this is the material. I have no idea if they're getting anything out of it because I have a mm-hmm. two hundred person class, so I can't do a synchronous class. Right, was synchronous no, meaning no. teaching at the same time. So we're all in there like in a Zoom conference or something. I can't do that. I can't manage it. So I have to put my lectures online asynchronously, so they watch them whenever they can. So there's no interaction at all. I have no idea if they're even, you know, if they might be putting it on and walking away and doing something else. I have no idea. One of the things you're saying, Shannon, which is really the key for me, is because I've done lots of asynchronous classes before, all like years. Which what? But the thing you're saying though is this speed. It's this time crunch that we've been mm-hmm. given. It's like yeah. I got a week, but just because I happen to have spring break, but you got three days. It's like okay, immediately online. It's like well, yeah. I, I, especially if you've never done it before. Yeah. This is really the key. It's for my other class right now at Metro Staging Cultures, I, this is actually so ironic to me. So I normally teach this class online and I, I teach it with a bunch of pirated materials from another professor. Shh, don't tell anybody. We do this all the time. I think okay. you just did. But. Um, but, <laughs> but but I usually teach that class online. This semester I was teaching it in person and that was a challenge for me. It's like, oh, how can I make this into taking up an hour and 15 minutes? It was a challenge for me to make it in person. Now I'm making it back online. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But like, what you're saying is like, how do you make something you have already set? And we are required to have this all set ahead of time. How do you immediately make it not just online only, but a thing that students can experience and get a lot out of yeah. and get, like you're saying, the three credit hours or however many credit yeah. hours they're paying for. Right. How, how do you do that? And how do you do it within days? Natalie, solve all our problems. All of them? All of them. All of them. I actually think Natalie brings an interesting perspective to this because Natalie is the only one of the five of us who is not only experiencing this as an instructor, but also experiencing this as a student. Yeah. Oh, right. So what what do you got, Natalie? So luckily, I'm, I'm mostly out of coursework right now. All I really have is my translating French class to satisfy my foreign language requirement. And we haven't heard anything from that professor. So who knows if that's even still happening? <laughs> oh, no. Quel dommage. I am mostly just listening and like taking notes privately because I've also only been teaching for six years now. So I don't, I'm barely figuring myself out in the classroom to begin with. And then they're like, hey, now you're online. And then on top of that, this is my first semester actually teaching a literature course. Up till now, I've been teaching all developmental English, as well as just freshman English composition classes, things like that. So this class, more than any other class I've ever taught, has basically been read the book, and then we're going to talk about it. So it's all discussion-based. No lectures to record, really. I haven't been lecturing really at all, except maybe a little bit of context at the beginning and then some discussion questions to facilitate. And before we left for our extended two-week spring break, I asked my students what they wanted this class to look like for the rest of the semester because I had no idea. And the one thing they desperately wanted was no discussion boards or chats or anything. So I was kind of like, well, this is a discussion-based class. Did they explain why? They think it's awkward to talk online. They said it's harder to respond via typing than in person. And so, they don't... So what are you doing instead of threaded a discussion? So what we came up with as a class, I'm really lucky to only have to teach one class this semester as a grad student, so that's a whole other thing, was they had a final take-home essay exam where they were going to have to do three out of five questions, pick the three you wanted to answer. And they're turning in their creative project after spring break. So they're constructing a comic on their own right now, hopefully, that they're going to turn in when they get back by whatever means necessary. I told them if they want to mail it to me, they can. But pictures in my email will be better. And then after that, they have a reflective essay due. So that's two weeks. And then after that, they're just going to turn in one question a week from the final exam, and that'll take us through to the end of the semester. 
So basically two pages a week until the end of the semester. They're not interacting with each other then at that point. No. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's less fun for me. But I had to sit down and think about, like, what are the things I want them to take out of this class? And I wanted them to understand the material and how to read a comic, basically, more than I wanted them to be able to be friends and talk to each other. So if that's what they wanted, I was I was okay with that. I actually really like kind of what Natalie was talking about, about how, because it's highlighting, I think, some of the different classroom personalities that we see in all of our classrooms. And I so for me, I have uh, uh, two sections of a developmental English class, which basically means these are the students who are not at the 101 level yet. These are students who are working up to that. So for them, their backstories are often really intense. They are often people who have come from very non-traditional paths and sort of stumbled into a college and they're like, okay, make me a student. And I'm like, all right, yeah. So we're, we're going to start with community <laughs> and you get the community. A lot of times that happens in the classroom and from the community grows the knowledge and the intelligence and the, all that other stuff that they hope to pick up because they're all starting to help each other out. And so they really, really, really need that. That I could see as very different from students who are at a different place in their careers where they're like, yeah, I, I kind of know how to be a student, got that, or at least I know my version of being a student. So I'm going to go off and just give me the work. Let me do it. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. But for me, the biggest struggle here is the teacher as a psychologist. And I'm, I'm happy to do this to the extent that I can, but almost triage the trauma of this, which is huge. And I myself am traumatized by it. Yes. So it's one of those things where I feel a little bit helpless, but also a little bit like if I do anything in the course of, of the day, it's good. Anything is good at this point. So I, I just kind of hang on to that and, and try to foster the, that community. And, you know, for all we talk about like platforms and assignments and all that stuff, it's this underlying hum, what, what this American life called the underlying hum of menace, just that, that mm. bubbling sort of thing that we're all kind of dealing with right below the surface. I, I find this really such an interesting time to be a professor of popular culture because a lot of my classes involve me telling students go out and watch a thing or go read a thing or Mm -hmm. and I find myself at this point can I say go binge a whole season of a thing because you were going to do that anyway go (laughs) you were going to spend seven hours on the couch playing video games anyway can I say go play this particular game And then let's talk about it. Yes. What are my new options for the consumption of popular culture that I can then bring into this classroom experience? That gives me a major question, actually, especially because I'm teaching not only for DU, for grad students, but especially for the Metro kids. How much can you request them? Because a lot of them actually might still not have internet at home. Mm -hmm. A lot of them may not have safe homes still to go to mm-hmm. a lot of them may not be able to even have the money for like a netflix subscription or a disney plus subscription whatever so like i don't know what's the integrity of, of requesting that they go find whatever it is if i'm not supplying it to them exactly because we don't know if they have netflix or hulu right or they might disney not plus. Have yeah any and so internet. then we require that's an excellent point i'm because i'm teaching social media this semester, I don't have to worry about that as much. I mean, there are clips that I would show that I can just choose not to show or however I want to do it. But when you, I'm actually not teaching media studies or popular culture this semester. That is an amazing problem. (laughs) Do you find that you're teaching social media using social media now? Like if I were you teaching social media, I'd be like, okay, let's meet on. I would absolutely <laughs> do that. The problem is I have 200 students and I don't oh, right, have yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I chose, see, I chose this semester not to require them to do Twitter or use something like that. So for me to right now try to, I, I can barely get them all to pay attention sure, to what yeah, I'm yeah. doing. So to say, oh, everybody get a Twitter account now. It only, I can't remember, only like maybe two thirds of them even have Twitter and a lot of them probably a private account. So trying to figure that out, that's the problem. It's interesting that you mentioned TikTok. Like I have actually been fascinated by TikTok. I have a 12-year-old daughter and so I'm very familiar with TikTok and being sent TikToks all day long. My 10-year-old stepson is a dance addict and so TikTok Ah. is like the perfect thing and now I'm completely addicted myself and so I'm making all of my college students do 
it's like great. One of my students, for her interesting fact at the beginning of the semester, told everyone she was TikTok famous, and I was Ooh, like, wow. I don't know what that is, but congratulations. Oh, well, that's a big deal. Yeah. Ah. It's apparently easier to get TikTok famous than it is to get YouTube famous or Instagram famous. It's, it's, <laughs> it's cool in that way. In a sense, it's more democratic. Well, there's a, lot, there's a lot of creativity going on there. And as far as the LGBTQ safe spaces, that's one of the main Absolutely. ones. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. TikTok is a very weird mix of things it's all dance crazes it's all it is chris it's all dance crazes well that's what i thought <laughs> but then you peruse the content and there's a whole lot of very weird things happening on tiktok and it hits right at the right age for my kid who is a seventh yeah. grader now it hits right at the right age for her to have me not want her to have it <laughs> <laughs> because of the mix of things that it is, because it is this mix of things that are super kind of fun, like these dance craze videos or kids just telling jokes or whatever, kind of like old school Vine. It, yeah, yeah no, it is exactly a lot like that. Vine. It's a, it's a lot like Vine, but also a, a sort of complete inability to monitor what videos are being watched? Oh, yeah. There's no way. They, they tried to institute some kind of parental controls. And I'm like, how are they even going to do that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for a college-age student, I think, yeah, this is this is actually a pretty great platform. And they can sift through their own content. But the younger and younger that that shifts, the more I question whether or not what, what the value of it is. Yeah, but there's a remarkable sense of self-curation amongst the kids that are younger than college age, at least the, the kids that are younger than college adults. I've been marveling at this recently. We're talking about this about pop culture. How do you filter pop culture for kids that are younger than, you know, say, teen or whatever? But I noticed that the young young kids that I'm in contact with, they, they self-curate pretty effectively. They don't really go into all of the inappropriate they, they scroll through all of it. It's not like they're being filled. I mean, they're being monitored to make sure they're safe and everything like that. But I noticed that they just go through that. Like, ah, that's not for me. Eh, it's just, a, they just like, they curate, they self curate really effectively. And I'm really surprised by that because when I was that age, I would never have self curated like that. But of course we didn't have all the technology that we How have do today. you know though? When you watch them, when you monitor them, you see what they're looking at. Kids can filter a lot out, even before TikTok, when they were reading or watching movies or whatever. If they don't get a thing, if a thing is too adult for them, they don't really investigate it. Just kind of like blanks in their mind and they skip right past it. That's true of my daughter, definitely. Not for me. Whatever. I'll go on to the next thing. That's cool. Like all of the adult jokes in children's movies that we all noticed sure. I'd never picked up on as a kid. Just, I forgot that <laughs> joke was even in there. The thing that yeah. I love about TikTok compared to, say, Instagram. Instagram is all about, look how pretty my life is. Look how great I look. Look how awesome it is. That's a status-based app. TikTok is a talent-based app. Look at this cool thing I made. Look at this cool thing that I did. Look at this cool thing I can do. What can you do? It, it's just, it's it's active. I mean, I see, see my kid dancing all the time. You know, that's got to be positive. And there's the duet function where you can like mm -hmm. add yourself into them. You can like literally have dialogue between some yeah. of these, these videos. And it's also not even just, it's the talent base, but it's just authenticity. Yeah. I see yeah. a lot of videos that are like, hey, here's me without makeup. Let me talk to you about something real quick. Like, there's a lot of real honest stuff like that. It, it sounds like there's kind of an interest here in figuring out a way to present our students with both shared experience and rigor. Shared experience can happen through any of the platforms we, we've been talking about. And for me, it's also been happening a lot through thinking about older forms of, well, things older than, I guess, modern social media. You know, we're reading Anna DeVere Smith's Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992 right now. And hearing them perform that over Blackboard Collaborate, which is what we use, is kind of awesome because then you get a radio play out of it. So you've got that piece and then you've also participated in that. And then we can kind of talk about a period in history where people also could not leave their homes because there was a riot going on outside of them. And obviously that's very different than what, we're ha what we have right now. But we have 
have this other informational piece that we can pull from the past to say, all right, here's a group of people who were also stuck. They were stuck for different reasons and they said different things about it, but let's listen to that and then move it here. And so that's kind of been where the rigor comes in. So I think as long as we're blending the the shared experience in our class, whatever that is, and in pop culture, it's all about, I think, using many of those platforms to do it with the rigor that our students maybe come to expect and maybe need now more than ever because it is very easy to make things easy. <laughs> you can certainly sit on your couch and stare into space and that's very tempting for a lot of the day, but we can actually make things harder than that. And I think that that's a real good thing that we have. That is a question that I actually want to ask all of you. How have you been balancing, and I think we kind of touched on this a little already, but how have you been balancing the need to keep structure and standards high with our desire to, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you feel this way, I feel this way, to kind of bend over backwards to be understanding of the craziness that we have all found ourselves in. And on one hand, I kind of want to be like, you know what, you check out, I understand, go for it. But at the same time, requiring them to do things because they're in a class and they're, you know, I, what, how have you guys been approaching that? I think my students would fall over dead if I stopped requiring rigor from them. If they think there was something really, really wrong with me. I mean, for me, I make my standards clear and I make my empathy clear. So it's about making those two things incredibly clear. It's about making sure that the structure is in place for those who can access it. So our old class met from 9 to 11.25. This current class has things going on from 9 to 11.25, whether it's meeting on Blackboard Collaborate or doing another piece of work kind of off on their own independently. But that also means that there's tons of asynchronous stuff going on too. And there's also a lot of understanding that if your job tells you that you are now working from 10 in the morning to 6 p.m. or you do not have a job anymore, my answer is that's okay. Let me show you where these things are recorded. Let me show you where all of this stuff lives that you can kind of do on your own time if you are able to, and all of them are. The feedback I've been getting so far is that the structure that's in place has been really helpful because most of my students have been using it, and most of my students feel like without it, they would just kind of be lost for this uh, period in the day. So I, I feel like it's important for me to maintain it for that reason. Mostly I've been trying to just let flexibility guide everything I do. I have a lot of students who are junior and senior level bio students, pre-med track. And yeah, it's a it's an interesting demographic to have in a comic book class. <laughs> They're not shy about telling me they only took this class because they need to fulfill a literature requirement and comics aren't real books. Oh, uh, I know it breaks my heart. Ouch. Well, hopefully you'll change their minds. Oof. Right. I have so far. I mean, I got a good, what is it? Two thirds of the semester or not even that. So I, far. I don't know. I feel like it's been 5 million years since we started doing this. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, okay. So I got about half of the semester <laughs> and I do have right now three or four students who are emailing me every couple of days telling me what comics they've been reading just for funsies. Uh, granted, they were the students who desperately wanted to take this class because they're giant comic book nerds, but that's been nice for me. Yeah. And I've tried to give them a really big variety of comics, so there's been something for everyone so far. And this pandemic was actually wonderfully timed for my class, <laughs> very considerate of COVID-19, because in a couple of weeks we were planning on starting web comics anyway. I was going to ask, how many people are in your class, and do you always assign web comics or paper comics? I'm just, I'm curious. So I have about 35 students right now. Okay, that's not bad. This is my first time teaching a lit class, and it's probably my last time teaching a lit class at oh. LSU, so real, real excited. It got cut <laughs> down in half. My advisor has not gotten a chance to observe me yet, so that'll be interesting for my for my letters of rec, you know, uh, someday. Dang. Yikes. <laughs> I have another question I wanted to ask everybody. How much have you or have you been incorporating the pandemic into your instruction, like into the actual content and material to keep things relevant and things that are on everybody's minds? Like, have you found yourself assigning more post-apocalyptic media content? Or, yeah, I don't know. I'm just wondering. 
Yeah. Because I struggle with that. Yeah, I'm not really doing that, but I think that's probably down to the kind of classes I'm teaching this semester. They don't really lend themselves to doing that kind of thing very well, so I'm just not. I've seen a lot of people talk about COVID-19 assignments. And just like as a person with depression and anxiety, I can think of nothing worse as a student. Yeah. I cannot imagine wanting to write about my experience through Corona right now, because right now all I'm doing is just pushing it down. Just push it real deep, you know, just get rid of it as much as possible. Well, for me, I mean, I already have everything super planned out, so I I can't really deviate so much. Although what I'm noticing, though, is that the, the stories that I have assigned in dramatic form for, the, I, I, I do for my final in the movement class, I had them do an ensemble performance of a Dr. Seuss story, which I've converted to like dramatic form. And so I'm noticing that the stories that I've chosen for them to do are very, I don't know, they're, they're very political. Of course, Dr. Seuss is extremely political, right? But you can read into the stuff that I already have in place very much about all the issues that we're going through right now. But as far as changing assignments or, or like switching literature, I don't, I'm not really doing that. I'm just, I'm just, I'm trying to help my students get through what they already have planned for them. I mean, I, I agree with what Natalie and Jen have said so far, which is just that we have this stuff in place and we're not changing that. But there are these incidental connections that we can start to make, like I said before, with Twilight Los Angeles 1992. Right now, honestly, my biggest concern is their ability to tell like fact from fiction, you know, oh. like and, and do that sort of critical thinking. Because mm. if you're going to go off and read the Internet, then I definitely want you to be able to tell the difference between actual scientific analysis of COVID-19 and the pandemic and all that stuff versus, oh, it's this plan by the government to reduce the population. And I'm like, it's probably not that. Learning how to find legit sources these days is a real different thing, isn't it? What about you, Shannon? What are you doing in your classes? I have been incorporating it a little bit into my discussion questions mostly in the sense of like, because remember, it's a social media class. So how are you using social media differently now that because honestly, social media have been, you know, lifelines, I think, because now that we're deprived of so much in person social interaction, so that I have incorporated that into my discussion questions, like how much have you, you know, are there any social media platforms that you have been using that you forgot about? For me, it's Facebook. I have, I posted a few times on Facebook for the first time in like years. And so what have you been using more? How has your social media use changed? You know, things like that, sort of trying to make it a little topical and relevant because it is what everybody's thinking about, but not asking about questions about like, are you afraid to go outside? You know, or stuff, things like that. Mm You know, because I'm recording all of these lectures, like it's not like I have have any of them pre-recorded, so I could change everything if I wanted to. But I, so far, I haven't been, and I'm actually talking to you all is making me glad that I haven't, because I'm realizing no, it probably I felt a little bad in a sense that I'm not changing up these lectures that I've already you know done in the past, and I've kind of been recording the ones that I've, you know, the, or the content that I've already put together to some extent. And I feel like, oh, I could be making it more topical. And you all are reminding me, maybe not. So maybe don't make it so topical. You know, maybe that's not the best idea. <laughs> yeah. And I've noticed that other semesters when we don't have a pandemic as well. So down here, uh, oh, that's, when that's the icon era. Yeah, right. <laughs> remember ages and ages ago when there wasn't a virus wiping out the human race? Exactly. Uh, I just saw a meme today that said, remember places? Yeah, I do remember when we go to places. <laughs> remember when um, the worst thing that happened was the end of Game of Thrones? Well, uh, a couple of years ago, when all the statues came down here in New Orleans, the Confederate statues, I tried to incorporate it into my classroom and be topical and current eventy, and my students hated it. They just didn't want to talk about it. They were sick of statues. They didn't want to talk about it anymore. They had no opinions. They were just like, eh, I just, I don't care. Everyone's yelling about it. Yeah. So. 
I mean, I kind of get that. Like, it almost seems mm-hmm. not pedagogically strange or anything, but like it, it almost as a human feels like a lot of pressure to have to process immediately the thing. I know like on Facebook, some, some folks that I'm connected to are really good at that and are really just kind of on it. And like, here's how I feel. And, and some folks, which I really admire them, them sharing this, they're kind of like, I need some time to literally just be a pile of garbage right now. And I'm like, I get that. That makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) Well, this seems like a nice, logical place to take a break. So hang tight. We'll come back in two and two. I know you're sitting there right now enjoying this podcast, The Deconstruction Workers, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? If you have, let me talk to you a little bit about Blueberry.com. Blueberry is the hosting service where The Deconstruction Workers lives and thousands of other podcasts. There are no contracts with Blueberry.com. You can cancel at any time. Blueberry is optimized for Apple, for Google Podcasts, for Spotify. There's free technical support. You are given a free WordPress website. Blueberry.com is an amazing place to host a podcast and it is very, very affordable. If you'd like to give it a try yourself, go to www.blubrry.com. Use the promo code PODCASTDCW and get a free month. And now, back to the show. And we're back. So really what this conversation has boiled down to is trying to get our students to understand that we're doing the best we can, just like they're doing the best they can. I hope that if if any students are listening to this, that they'll understand that the teachers on the other side of this are kind of going through exactly what they're going through and are just interested in exploring that existing that space with them and that teacher and student is not an adversarial relationship it's one that's that's very connected and and in sync now now more than ever i feel like as popular culture professors we're already sort of humanized to our students in a way that maybe your math professor or your biology professor is not because you know we spend all day talking about how we like the same stuff as you we like all the same comic books and all the same tv shows and all the same movies and all the same music and video games and whatever so there's already that sort of humanizing element but then this on top of that where I'm inviting you into my home really where I'm teaching you and you're inviting me into your home where you're learning that's a very much more intimate sort of a setup I mean not just here are my toys because like you Jonathan I often also have toys in my space where I'm teaching but here is my cat here's my other cat and here is my third cat and they won't shut up or stay out of this room as I'm teaching so they are now a part of the lesson and so on and so forth. Speaking of which not to take it out of what we're already talking about but kind of what's going to happen to popular culture just in general? A lot of our current shows are going to get put off and the mm-hmm. production oh, yeah. shut down and I how is I'm wondering how is that going to change teaching popular culture going forward. I mean, there, we've got this, I've been hearing this kicked around in term, in economic terms as the great cessation and in, term, in economic terms, but we could think about that in popular culture terms as well. Like we are going to have a period where we don't have much new stuff, much new mm-hmm. content. Well, in my world of live theater, everything has been canceled through yeah. Ju- June, basically. Same here. Yeah. There's been there's been the image of the ghost lights being put up, which is really this kind of sad thing. You know, just just Google ghost light and what that means. It's a thing that you put up in the theater when you're mm-hmm. done to wow. keep, yeah. keep to keep the space until you're there next. It's just like yeah. I mean, I don't know. And I've I've been hearing that certain like big comic stores have like yeah in our chat they were saying that like they've stopped taking new paper entries and stuff like wow man Mm -hmm. i don't even this is going to change everything it's going to change everything about not only how we produce pop culture but how we consume it yeah i think we're going to need a whole episode or two just on that part of it but i think natalie you're actually you're working in such an interesting area with web comics that's something where you'll probably yeah that doesn't get shut down (laughs) yeah and i mean 
I was mostly working with trades anyway. We had planned to go to our special collections. We have a pretty big comic book collection, mostly Silver Age stuff here, so that we could actually like see comic books and hold them in our hands and look at seriality and materiality in, in cool ways. And now that's off. So it's interesting. One of the final questions on the final exam is to think about the different ways in which we consume pop media when it's online versus when it's something we're holding in our hands. And I think that's a really interesting question anyway, but even more so when all of our media is suddenly becoming digitized even faster than it normally does. And I think moving forward too, this isn't just a half a semester thing. I mean, especially living down here on the Gulf Coast, uh, we have two-week interruptions almost every semester due to flooding or hurricanes or whatever. Uh, and really? Are, yeah, yeah, and those are only going to get more frequent as, as climate change progresses. Right. So sure. I think making this move now as forced as it is and as uncomfortable as it is and as much as everyone hates it is actually going to really be extremely helpful as we move forward in this this really decaying world that we're in. Oh, well, now we're back into my world. One of the things, long-time listeners of this show, one of the things you know I study is dystopia. If you're interested in what dystopia is as a subject, look around, because we are rapidly heading in that direction. Do y'all think in-person classes are going to be dead? I think they were to begin with. I think they were already on their way out. I don't mm. think that's true. Yeah, me neither. I'm not ready to put a nail in the coffin of that just yet. No. I I mean I think that I think that I am learning new ways to make my in-person classes more accommodating to people who might get sick or who might, you know, have uh work or family issues pop up, but I don't know. I mean, I I I think that there's something to the bodies in the room that just makes a difference. I, and I that's agree. a human thing. People always need oh, that. Oh, I that's agree. True. No, yeah. you're right. I agree. But I think that, I think a lot of university administration would like to push us all online. And I, but I think that classes like movement classes that you teach, music performance classes, those, there's no way to do that online really, that yeah. you don't well, get the we'll same thing. Well, we'll find out, but, won't we? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's true. So it's, you know, but I don't know that I could, I think there's definitely value in being in the room, even teaching something like social media. Oh, me too. Especially as a professor of popular culture. I mean, fundamentally, popular culture is a social cultural experience. A lot of times we do consume popular culture by ourselves, but a lot of popular culture is not meant to be consumed by yourself. It's meant to be consumed collectively, whether that's in a movie theater or in a live theater or even television, a lot of times is designed for you to watch with other people. So the study of popular culture is also a fundamentally collective experience. We do share a lot about our consumption of popular culture in the study of popular culture. So I don't know that that collective in the room experience can, can number one, can be replicated online, but number two, if we should even attempt that, at least not on any kind of long-term basis. So I have two stepsons, one is 13, one is 10, and they are, have, they're just back from spring break just now, and their school district hasn't got their stuff together for their belief together to give them online classes yet. They're closed through at least April 19th. They're probably going to be closed for the rest of the year, I would imagine. But anyway, the official date is mid-April. So they have like a, a combination of parents trying to find stuff online randomly to give them that's vaguely educational. My sincerest hope is one of the things that comes out of this entire affair is the annihilation of the notion that anybody in this country is qualified to homeschool their own children. <laughs> 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 as well as I'm noticing that the, the gaming world is very socially yeah. educational and like the social mm -hmm. world their disruption is pretty minimal honestly their entire social life isn't really much with the students they see like their friends that they see in school in person there's most of their social life is through these games online like most of it that I would say at least 85 to 90 percent of it 
is all through gaming as far, as far as the social media. I don't know what, Shannon, would you call games the social, the virtual social media? It can be. I mean, there are definitely social elements, especially to the way gaming is done now. I mean, I don't know that I would call gaming or games a social medium, but it definitely has. It can be used that way. Social media, absolutely. I, I just um, see, I see them using it that way. And they're just like, they're not, they're not really that disruptive. I mean, they're, they're a little disturbed. They're like, oh, oh, wow. Okay. So interesting, huh? But they're not like the way they socialize and the way they have their friends, their friends cultivated stuff. They're well, doing it exactly the same thing. The gamers were very much ready. The yeah, gamers no, were very <laughs> much ready yeah. for this apocalypse to strike. Very much. Because it doesn't it hasn't changed right. it hasn't changed gamer culture at all. I spend I spend a lot of time in uh, multiplayer games. I do a lot of multiplayer gaming just on my own. And in talking to people over the past week about sort of what they're doing or how they're managing the fact that they don't have to actually physically show up for classes is giving them more time yeah, to yeah. do their work when they want to do it, which mm -hmm. is giving them more time to game. Gamers are like, we actually have more game time now than we had during the regular school session because nobody cares if I turn something in on Canvas at three o'clock in the morning. They don't care. I mean, and and I think the bigger the bigger question sort of underlying the discussion is like, what what is the purpose of academia moving forward if we can sort of prove that there are all these other ways for connection to happen? To which I would say, like, yes, all of all of that is valid. But I do think that at least on our end, you know, I teach for a public university system. The program that I teach for costs students seventy five dollars for the entire semester, Bless. and what they get from that is basically a way to enter a college study program and also redo some of the high school stuff that either they messed up or their high school messed up, which actually, oh, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. happens and, or some combination of the two. And it gives them that second chance and it gives them some structure for that. Uh, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Are there, there are teachers who are exploited and, and students are exploited. Sure. I mean, more humanity, uh, more empathy, more of kind of what we're starting to appreciate here online being transferred into the room, which I think is something that everybody in this conversation is doing. Mm -hmm. But on a wider scale, I think that would be uh, amazing. I think that could change it in, in remarkable ways. Yeah. And I wasn't saying that I could be replaced by a podcast or a YouTube video, um, by the way, and, and no, reevaluating no. like my role in the classroom. It's, it's, as a very human presence, right? It's it's that connection between the knowledge and the student, right? Like I'm that middle ground. So yeah, I think our jobs are more important than ever. It's just kind of parsing what that new job is means, yeah. in this open access, all media saturated world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's a, that's a huge, a huge task. Um, luckily, we yeah. study pop culture, so we're well suited for it. But yeah, we're all engaged yeah. in a sort right. of meta project, you know, doing it, and then what does it mean in the grand scheme of things? We're all mm -hmm. sort of, you know, professional right. subtext readers and meta text mm -hmm. analyzers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. This is what we this is what we do anyway. <laughs> we're just applying it to a different to a different you know concept, but this is what we always do anyway. Yeah. One of the things that I'm finding is that as this new sort of learning experience is happening, it is exposing also the places where the immediate human connection is necessary to the process itself. So one of the things I'm doing this semester is I'm teaching two sessions of screenwriting. I'm teaching both beginning and intermediate screenwriting this semester. And both of those classes only have, one has 12, one has 13. So they're relatively small classes. And one of the things my students wanted was, so in our normal in-seat session, I do an hour of lecture and then they get a 15 minute break. And then I do an hour and 15 minutes of workshop where we actually live read scripts and we pass them around and we do notes and the, the whole workshopping thing. And my students 
a whole bunch of them emailed me the day that the university announced that we were going online to ask me if we were still doing workshop because that's the part of the class where a lot of our learning takes place is when we go into someone's script and say, remember all that stuff I was lecturing about? Here's where this is happening and why and why this scene doesn't work or why this, these dial this dialogue doesn't work. And so what I'm doing online is we're doing, I record an hour of lecture and they can watch that anytime between, you know, now and when class meets. And then I'm doing an actual synchronous, all at the same time, uh, WebEx meeting where all 12 of them can see each other on their cameras. And we're going we're gonna to live read scripts and we're going to live workshop. And we did both classes last week and they both worked out really well and people were really excited about it and, you know, um, got to get that same live feedback. But there's no way to do that same thing in an asynchronous completely whenever you feel like doing it environment. Well, that's, that's exactly how my DU literature or our writing course is structured. There's a lecture that's written and there's another sort of overview type thing, which is written. And then their workshops are all in threaded discussions. That's the same thing they're doing. It's not, it's not immediate. But right. it's, that's, it's that exact structure, though. So, it, I mean, like, the, the dynamic is different, but it's, it is the same structure, though. I'm just, I was it's struck stru- Structurally, that. it's the same. I just think there's something, something more, it, I think it would be like if you were teaching a basic acting class, you know? There is something to getting that like reading a if i were to read a scene to you right now those of you who are listening to the podcast you wouldn't know this but i'm i'm looking at all four of you on camera and you're all looking at me as well there is something to me reading a line and watching your eyebrows go up and watching you like oh that part was funny or me bombing and thinking, oh, I wrote this really funny scene and then watching all of your blank faces at me and, oh, okay, well, this isn't working, right? So there is something there is something tangible to that part of the learning experience for those of us who are working not only in pop culture uh, reception, those not just working in pop culture deconstruction, but for those of us who are working in the actual creation of popular production, culture as yeah. well in production, there is something to that immediate live interaction that can't be replaced in an online environment asynchronously. It, it just can't. It has to be immediate in the moment. I mean, Jonathan is a playwright. Jonathan also would under, also understands this, right? I mean, there is something to, you know, the first time you read it out loud and you get the reaction from the people and that part can't be replicated. Screenwriting and playwriting in particular. Yeah. I mean, this class I'm talking about was a short story. So, it, yeah. You yeah, know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah totally. As far as media goes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess we can learn a lot as teachers from just thinking about what we do, just in our in our daily lives. Like, how do we learn? And then, what is it about that method that makes it exciting? And then, how do we transfer that to our students? So, I know that I am at my most excited when I bring in something that I found or created myself and then present it in a safe context where I know that people are invested in what I have to say and will give me feedback just in the same way that I want to do that for other people. So, I know that that gets exciting. So, so how can I then convey that excitement to students, preferably in person, if it has to happen like this, then it does. But yeah, I mean, the, the big question of like how to convey excitement, how to convey passion. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in, in that. Uh, as, as and that's one of the main things I'm struggling with. Like I said, I had to stop trying to be funny <laughs> because I have no idea how it's going over it's like chris was saying you there's so much that you get off of like watching someone's reaction to what you're doing that's just missing you know especially in an asynchronous kind of way i can't it's just 
not there. And it, but, but that alone makes me rethink what I'm doing. You know, what, that I have to think harder about the material because I can't rely on that in-person energy element. I can't rely on that. So I have to think almost a little harder about, okay, what do I really want them to get out of this and drill it down? My lectures are shorter, a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. Because it's honestly, it's going to be a lot harder for them to pay Mm -hmm. attention to something on a screen than it is in a room full. Not that I'm saying I'm all that captivating and charismatic, but it's just easier. (laughs) It's just easier to pay attention when you're, you know, the energy of the room when you're sitting next to people who are all paying attention to the same thing. And this is something I talk about in class. What makes a community? Mm. Right. Right. What makes a community? You know, are you all a community because you're sitting there and pay attention to me and I do the you know, I'll do something. Well, I'm not going to get into that, but you know, and no, and it, it's even harder. I'm, I'm actually going to have to draw this into my yeah, class. Oh, yeah. This is a good point. I'm sorry. I don't mean, to, but like, you know, what makes us all as a class a community, and how do we make? Because I asked the question, can we maintain community on social media? Well, sure, but okay. So now, then, let's get meta. How do I maintain this community in this class? You know, um, there's a. For sure. There's a few. And you bring up you bring up a good point, which is, you know, one of the things that I miss is a thing that I complain about constantly, which is my lectures, which are usually taking up, you know, two hours of a two and a half hour class sometimes, because of the way that I I structure my lectures, but it can take up to two hours. I did one of those lectures in like a half an hour for yeah. for video. I, I broke it up into, you know, into 10 minute blocks and it only took me three 10 minute blocks. And I think it's because no one's interrupting me with questions. No one's kicking in a funny thing that relates to the thing that I'm saying. No one is, oh, this one, t- what about this? I I found this in the reading, what about this? And without those interruptions, I realized my actual contribution to the way that I lecture is way less than I thought it was. <laughs> it's a lot yeah, of me yeah. lecturing, quote unquote, by just answering whatever random question came up or by elaborating on whatever point some student has made. And I really miss that. I miss yeah. the going down a rabbit hole for 15 minutes on a, th- on a thing that's important totally. to the class. And is still on topic. It's just not what I had planned to talk about. Well, there's that a reason day. why they call them yep. lecturettes when they're online. <laughs> right. I mean, it almost takes us kind of shifting our thinking to be like kind of content creators, which we are right now in this podcast. We will. We are having a very excited conversation amongst ourselves. We will put it out there, and that might be listened to by a thousand other excited people, or it might be listened to zero, mm-hmm. and we just don't know. But we are excitedly kind of putting this out because we are invested in this and excited about it. Of course, the flip side to that is for teachers, you know, don't drive yourself crazy making videos that are like perfect and edited and everything like that, especially like in this particular climate do the best you can but also try to convey i guess the 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 content the the excitement and the content that you're you're throwing out see i don't have i don't have that at all i don't have that at all i have the exact opposite which is i now have this whole online medium to play with in a way that i don't in person so For example, uh, one of the things I'm proudest of is I built a makeshift green screen that I am now recording my lectures on so that I can play videos and whatnot in the background. And I can do, it's very much like a Tonight Show set now where like I can have a little box window where I can talk about things and they can appear in the window and I can put Chiron's what are called Chiron's or lower thirds. Like I can put words on the screen as I'm talking. Uh, And so my students see me and they see words and they see videos and they see all kinds of stuff. That's stuff I can't do in person, but this new environment gives me a whole wealth of opportunity to use all of my film school stuff that I have not used in a really long time to now make these really cool videos for my students so for me, it's it's less about, oh, I need to get the content online and more about I can take a bunch of stuff that I find online and pastiche it together into a really cool learning opportunity, a really cool lesson for my students in a way that I never would have thought of 
on a week to week basis because I've done my lectures for so long that I kind of know what I'm lecturing about this week. Oh, you, you know? better believe Chris. I love interruptions oh. by Magic Arts Barbie over here. <laughs> exactly. I love that. I wish you could see I wish you could see Jonathan's Magic Hearts oh, Barbie. Magic Hearts Barbie. <laughs> it's pretty magnificent. Chris, what software are you using? It sounds phenomenal. I'm using a combination of things, all of which, by the way, are free. I am using my webcam, my regular camera software. Plus, I am using a free editing program called Lightworks. And Lightworks has all of the functionality of, of an Adobe Premiere or of Final Cut of a very expensive editing software. But it's it's absolutely free. Zoom also has like backgrounds and stuff you can use, too. Zoom also can do it as well, but they're more limited. Yeah. Lightworks lets you do actual green screen. And, an, I, and I bought a lime green sheet that I have tack that I can tack to the wall behind me and that's my green screen and then all you have to do in Lightworks is literally right click it select with a little dropper the green color and then it'll put behind you whatever you want to put behind you it is very super simple very very simple i do have a thing about like being an adjunct faculty i am also kind of hesitant because i've done this for 20 years and I'm kind of hesitant about giving more unpaid oh, absolutely. to what I already do, which is phenomenal amount. So. Yeah, no, I absolutely support that. I think there's a big difference between myself as a tenured professor on salary right. and then expecting you know, you or even more so expecting Natalie, who is a doctoral student who is yeah, teaching right, classes yeah. as part of her program mm -hmm. to put in that same amount of effort. I would never advocate that. Absolutely never. So I think right here is a good place to stop for this first episode. And we will continue this in a part two next time around. So stick around. Come back and we will meet up with you in part two to continue what I think is a very interesting discussion. So for my workers, for Natalie Shepard Bodine and Jonathan Alexandratos and Dr. Shannon Sindorf and Jen Zuko, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers and we'll see you again in two weeks. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a review wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or on Instagram at deconstructionworkers. This podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, thank you for supporting alternate scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2020, all rights reserved.